Hockey Point Live from here on 12 Ounce Sports. Wednesday, May 20th, 9.01 local time up here in the Great White North. Show brought to you by MyBookie.ag. Of course, go check out MyBookie. Punch in promo code 12OZSports, and they're going to match your first deposit up to $1,000. MyBookie.ag, promo code 12OZSports. A jam-packed show as always. We're going to kick it off with Adam Urban Trout here. We'll talk some NHL playoffs, CHL lawsuit, 9 20. Scott Powers from the Athletic Chicago is going to join. We'll talk some Blackhawks. Maybe we'll break down some of their young guns. They had a pretty exciting team this year. You got Doc Kubelik. Even some of those older guys, maybe they're ready for a playoff comeback if we get a 24-team format. Who knows about that? Then at 940, Jillian Kemmerer is going to come on, talk some KHL, her experience Life over Russia, China, all of that good stuff. But right now on the line, we've got Adam Ehrman Trout joining me. Adam, buddy, how's it going? Good, man. How are you? Doing good. Can't really complain. I mean, it's, you know, day, month, three, whatever we're on of quarantine. But I, I think we're kind of getting adjusted to the new normal. Things are slowly starting to open up, you know get to the golf course now at least that's nice that kind of frees your mind I don't know about you like I when I first started golfing it used to just absolutely stress me out like I thought I should be Tiger Woods like I'd be missing putts and I'd be like getting mad inside and now I'm just kind of like you know what I'm just gonna relax on the golf course have fun enjoy it roll with the punches and that's just kind of how it is yeah I I embarrassed myself pretty good the other day I played against a buddy and that didn't go all that well. Um, but once once I lost, and I lost pretty early, once I lost, I, I played really well. But not a, not a pressure golfer. You just got to relax on the course. I'm not someone who's going to be putting big money on holes or anything. So I guess that probably plays a little bit of a part into it. But I can definitely see. I mean, you're obviously a last dance guy. Just It, it doesn't make sense to me how much Michael Jordan golfed and still played basketball because if you think about it like when he's playing 36 holes on a game day like how many miles or kilometers is that walking like just a you know a solid 18 hole course like you're you're talking about maybe 100 kilometers miles i don't know like it's it's a crazy amount yeah probably not that many but like (laughs) (laughs) close i don't know Okay, everyone made a big deal about the Rodman thing. The bigger deal is that he actually skipped practice in between games three and four. Like, going from Chicago to Michigan's, like, you know, Saskatoon to Edmonton or something like that. Like, it's really not that far. But just, like, skipping practice, not telling anyone. <laughs> I don't know how, like, someone would think that's a good idea or how they thought they would get away with it. But honestly, like, Phil Jackson was a genius to get that team six championships. Yeah, he had to put up with a lot of shit, so he, he knew what he was doing. No kidding. What was your thoughts on the documentary, though? Like, is it the best sports documentary of all time? 
Yeah, probably. I, I mean, it's it's pretty cool how uh, how they kept all that footage for 20 years or whatever it was. Like, I don't know what the plans for it was or, or what it all was, but it was super cool, and I, I think that Jordan was pretty honest and cocky or whatever in all of his answers when he's just sitting there in his, in his like, black or black shirt or whatever and yeah it was it was really good and i thought it was funny with with rodman and some of those older older characters but yeah like i mean we have to wait for it to be on netflix but that's the one night i stayed up till four in the morning watching the two new episodes because that's when they got posted Jeez, that's dedication right there you gotta get like a one of those streaming sticks so you can just watch espn save your life yeah but I guess yet yet again, you can stay up till 4 a.m. Don't have to get up early. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Alrighty, back to the NHL news. I mean, it's it's been reported a lot of recent. I mean, even with hub cities, how many teams are getting in. But it almost seems like the general consensus now is that 24 teams will be in the NHL playoffs. And this the, the, this seems crazy. This is not something that I at first really enjoyed because I'm like, 24 teams. Like, what what is this? Are we just going to let everyone in? Like, I mean, hand out participation ribbons? That's what I was thinking at first. But then I kind of get it. Like, you know, maybe we have to include some of these teams to, I don't know, keep people happy, whatever you want to call it. It, it, it makes sense when they're going, well, Chicago's going to be in, Montreal's going to be in. Now that really, I mean, kind of gives you a different perspective. And and you kind of brought up an interesting point as well, is could this change the NHL playoff format forever? Yeah, I I, I think the, the 2014 playoff, like, this year, with, with all that's going on, probably makes sense, I think, just because, like, were Chicago and Montreal gonna get in? Uh, probably not. But at the same time, like you have to draw the line somewhere. And there's like a couple obvious teams, like the California teams, Detroit, Ottawa. Like they they obviously weren't gonna get in. But like you have to draw the line somewhere because Florida would have got screwed. They were like one point out or whatever with ten points or ten games left. So. You have to draw the line somewhere where it makes sense, and I guess at 24 teams, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And as far as going forward, some people were saying leave it at 24. I don't really think that makes sense, but if you've got it to to 20 or something with like some sort of a survivor series, like a a three game series where seven plays ten and eight plays nine in each conference, and then you kind of start the playoffs after that, I think would be really cool and give give you more money but if if a 24 team playoff was a thing like going forward then like how much would the regular season even matter right because there's going to be like usually four or five teams that are so much worse than everybody else and then the other 24 like there might be a couple battles but like over half the league knows where they're going to be at come january but here's my thing with expanding it full time and I, I, I don't believe 24 full-time is the, the right way to go. I think if that's the case, you'd probably just go with 32 just because I hate the whole bye week and, like, you know, buys and playoffs and other sports and other leagues. I think that's stupid. But if you go 32, then obviously that's the whole league with Seattle. So 
doesn't really make sense from that standpoint, but I, I think that the regular season needs to be shortened. You got to find a way. All these NHL teams, all they say, oh, and your playoffs. That's when you make your money. Playoffs, playoffs, playoffs. But like the the dog days of the NHL regular season are not quite as bad as baseball or the NBA with people taking their little rest breaks. But, like, it's it, it kind of gets old after a while. In 82 games, I get it. The owners don't want to shorten it up because they don't want to lose money. But there has to be a point in time where you go, like, what? The I, product I, gets hurt. The product gets hurt. It's game, like, 40 to 50 or whatever, where you're just kind of, like, before or after Christmas. And it's, like, kind of before the All-Star break. And it's, like, yeah, like, another, another Tuesday night game in Carolina or whatever, like, you know what I mean? Where the product starts to get hurt, and like I, I think it should get shortened because a couple of years ago I, I heard this that, and I think the wild card formats kind of hurt it. Where Tampa, Boston, and Toronto they they know where they've been the last two years, right? Like Toronto would have played Tampa this year, they would have played Boston last year, and they knew that since February both both times. Be careful, man. I have all 15 Carolina Hurricanes fans coming after yeah. us on Twitter. They're actually, pretty, they're actually pretty lively on Twitter. Oh, they're funny. I just give them a tough time. That's that's everyone. Yeah. I mean, the only the only fans I think that we've ever had real beef with, with is Tampa Bay, and that's because, I mean, it's Kucherov. It's what, what do, do you want us to, to lie to you and tell them that we're going to take him over Patrice Bergeron or Brad Marchand? Like someone of value in the playoffs? No, it's just not going to happen. Um, and they got swept too, so like I, I don't know. Like <laughs> they got swept, and they're trying to defend themselves. Like oh, like yeah, you know, we were just you know the system, the system, the playoffs. Yeah, but even like the the product getting hurt. Like I was even talking to Carolina. Like we went to a Sunday night Oilers game last year, their second half of a back to back, and and they were they were playing they were playing in in shoes basically. Like <laughs> it was such a bad hockey game. Like to go to like it was. Whatever in that game, but like the intensity level was like, oh yeah, like this team's probably not making the playoffs, and everybody in here spending a couple hundred bucks to watch this. The pace at the blackjack table was a lot faster. You just get a motorcycle rip right past you. Great idea to have the window open for that one. Adam Urban Trout joining us here on World Hockey Report Live, coming to you on Twelve Ounce Sports. Moving along, CHL lawsuit because that was a. Uh, that was a weird situation where I, I think you agree with me in a sense of they're just absolutely milking it to no end. But like, I, I don't know who won, who, who won the CHL lawsuit because to me, it really doesn't make sense. They're like, Oh, like we're, we're claiming to be amateurs or whatever, but we also are going to pay $30 million? Like, what damages is that going to cover? Because all these players were like, oh, well, you know, I was a minimum wage worker. Like, shut up. You're a hockey player and you're a junior hockey player for that. But, like, I, I don't get what came out of it, essentially. What, what, what do you, what's your um, understanding here? Yeah, I think, like, like, they settled it or whatever. So the $30 million, I guess it just said, covered, like, all the travel fees, all the hotels they would have spent, the lawyer fees all that like the the like five or six players only got like 10 grand or whatever and then the one guy got 20 and he played eight ohl games so there's yeah, that not um, a bad deal yeah so it's it's interesting because like i think we mean you both know a lot of people who have taken advantage of the 
CHL scholarship opportunity and it all seems to be be working with them like I was with a, a buddy and he bought a textbook and I was like oh like why wouldn't you just like like get that like like don't can you find another way to get them like getting at the bookstore brand new he goes no like it's it's covered right so I and like all, all that like you live for free essentially like it, there are some definite billet horror stories where you'd <laughs> rather pay to to not have like a ham sandwich for a pregame meal but there's that and i mean your equipment's free and all that and it's i don't know i, I want to hear your thoughts so they get treated to such a luxury lifestyle as a junior hockey player like think where else you're, you're not going to get that anywhere else in the world and here's my biggest argument is have those players not earned the right to be at that level you know you could be playing junior b you could be playing tier three juniors in the states club hockey ncaa div three where you are paying i mean tens of thousands of dollars just to play hockey and that's that's junior hockey as well and so and there's a lot of like junior a pay-to-play owners who are making a ton of money whereas i believe isn't it about like 15 percent of major junior teams lose money at the end of the day i might be a little bit off with my numbers but i feel like it's around that like price yeah i think that that can make sense like i i mean teams that miss the playoffs like the first round for a lot of teams to get into the playoffs is is such a big money maker most of the time that like a lot of I guess owners would be like, yeah, it's fine if, if we lose in the first round because that's means that we don't lose a ton of money this year. But if you're looking at a team that's missed the playoffs a couple of straight years, it's not probably not as good. And if you are, I, I don't know how to say it nicely. Like I don't want to like directly rip a player, but I mean, as brutally honest as I can be, if you are bitching and complaining about money while playing major juniors, while playing junior hockey in general, you must be such a spoiled brat. I don't give a shit how much you think you're worth at that age or how much you think you're making these owners. They are giving you such a good opportunity that so many kids would, you know, they would give their left nut for. It's insane. And so for you to be complaining that you're not making minimum wage, give it up. Sell your skates. If you're going to be that kid who wants to complain because you're not making minimum wage for playing junior hockey, living the dream that so many kids want to do, honestly quit. Go work at McDonald's and Walmart. I don't care. You're such a loser if that's what you're going to be complaining about. The amount of free gear, the like the free schooling, free living, you know, you're you're getting the be- some of the best personal training out there. You know, these facilities are top notch. And a matter of fact, like you're still getting money each week or every couple of weeks if you're playing in the dub plus, you know, whatever you might agree to under the table, like that's a matter of fact that's going to happen. Probably not as much nowadays as 10, 20 years ago, but it's going to happen. And so you're getting that opportunity and you're going to complain to the point of having a lawsuit. Like what? An, like, I don't know. That's embarrassing. It's embarrassing for the game. It's embarrassing for anyone who played junior hockey in general. Like just, just... Yeah, that's sickening. That's my thoughts. Yeah, I mean, and like let's say hypothetically these players were were gonna get paid minimum wage. Well, some of them, like if if they're like, oh, 
They like never would have touched the ice in Major Juniors because they'd be down multiple teams, and then the product would be a lot better, and those scums that played eight games and they're complaining about it never would have had a sniff at playing in the league. Yeah, and they're probably like, some of the guys are going to be like, oh yeah, I'll just go get my, my stuff out of Canadian Tire or something. Like, I want to save money or whatever, <laughs> so they're going to be playing in $150 skates and different colored gloves, and <laughs> they're going to be eating McDonald's on the road or whatever. Like, Exactly, yeah, that's that's a great way to put it, because that's that's like, it's almost, I mean, you hate to compare it to a pro level, but like, if you look at like how some of those teams in Eastern Europe run, like at the minor pro level, like you're making a better salary than say over in like Scandinavia and stuff. But they don't. I mean, they don't care what you're wearing. Like, not like watch it. Watch a pro team over in like Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Belarus. None of them have matching gear because they're like, whatever. As long as it's black, it's fine. But like, you're making a lot more cash versus like, say, Sweden or something. So that's that's where it's you know you're totally right. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, it's it's interesting. Like, obviously, like out of the thousands of guys that have played CHL, there's six guys named in the lawsuit. So a lot of them don't feel that way and I think I've talked to enough guys who have taken advantage of the scholarship opportunity and even those that haven't they're still like it, it wouldn't make sense to get paid like you you get enough that you know and maybe in some some places you don't some people could feel wrong but it's very few yeah no it's a joke okay last one for you though because uh, we're gonna get to commercial here soon it's our what's nutrition performance question of the day so I brought it up and everyone decided to like totally swing the question differently about how much would you pay like to like stream or pay-per-view an NHL playoff game. Everyone's like, oh, I want my refund for NHL Center Ice. That wasn't the damn question. Figure it out. How much, like, Adam, how much would you pay? Like, say, I, I don't know. This is this is the, the Western Conference Finals game number two. How much would you pay to sit down and watch this game? Like on TV or stream? Are, whatever. The, are the players mic'd? No, no, no. Just a regular broadcast. Just a regular broadcast. But this is your only way. Like, this is the NHL trying to bring back revenue. Um, I don't know. Like, probably, like, like 50 bucks or whatever. Like, Wow. Okay. That's good. Like, I was going to say I'd feel comfortable at, like, the 10 to 15. I don't know if I'd go as far as 20. Like, if it's for, like, the Stanley Cup Finals, yes, of course. But, like, you like, know. If it was, like, my only way and, like, if it was, like, Edmonton or Calgary, like, I'd probably probably do it but like i wouldn't do it to see like i don't know like minnesota versus no that's totally who, yeah exactly Alrighty, adam urban trout our guest here on world hockey report after the break we got scott powers back on we'll talk to you then World Hockey Report Live coming to you on 12 Valley Sports. Brought to you by mybookie.ag. Use promo code 120Z Sports and they're going to hook you up. They'll match your deposit up to $1,000. Mybookie.ag. Use promo code 120Z Sports. Happy to be joined by the Athletic Chicago senior writer, Scott Powers. Scott, how's it going here on this Wednesday morning? Good. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Not too bad. No, appreciate you making the time. I know it's kind of been a, a weird time. I got to imagine as, you know, someone who covers the Blackhawks in general. But 
from a media perspective as well, it's been an all right time where you can kind of catch up with some of these players and maybe get a little bit more in depth on some of your articles, which I know you have. But I, at first here, I want to get to your thoughts on the, the Blackhawks season because, you know, there, there might be some fans who are disappointed in some things and happy about others. And obviously, you know, it depends what side of the fence you fall on. But now that there's been this 24 team format kind of been pumped up and it seems like the Hawks might have a chance at, you know, playing meaningful games again. It seems like that optimism is back from a lot of the Chicago fans, writers, media members that we do follow. So, so what's been the you know the season like for you? Yeah, I don't, you know, I, I think the Blackhawks had higher expectations for what it was uh, at least the beginning of the season. I mean, this was was hyped up to be uh, a playoff team from the start, and you know the fact that Jeremy Collison was going to get a full season under him, a full training camp, and you know Stan Bowman, general manager, went out and. Uh, made moves this offseason like they were preparing to win. You know, they Andrew, added Andrew Shaw and Zach Smith and uh, Brian Carpenter and, um, you know, um, Olimata and Calvin DeHaan and so, you know, and, then, and especially Robert Leonard. So they go out and make a lot of moves and they're aggressive and they have cap space. And then uh, the season doesn't start out as expected. There's, there's some injuries, but most of the team underperforms. And uh, as, it, as the year goes on, it's on its footing a little bit and it improves. And, and got in the playoff race, but uh, even towards the end here, uh, things were looking good again. So, you know, before the pause, it, it didn't look like the Blackhawks were going to make the playoffs, and now, um, you know, there's a chance in this 24-team format where they they have a chance to make the playoffs. It doesn't sound like it's going to be a 20-team, 24-team playoff, but more of a you know opportunity to play into the playoffs. So, um, I, I, I don't know if the Blackhawks, you know, I guess anything can happen in hockey, but... Um, I guess the upside of having this extra time and not being one of the teams that goes home early would be just they have so many young guys. Uh, you know, a lot of guys have got uh, a lot of guys in ELCs, you know, entry level contracts, and then uh, you know a lot of rookies too. You look at you know Kirby Doc and um, uh, Dominic Kubalik and you know Adam Boquist. They had a lot of guys in their first seasons, and you know for those guys to play some uh, play some more games, one, but then also play meaningful games too. Um, certainly should help in their development and get those guys back on the ice. So um, I, I still don't know if the Blackhawks are a contender when they come back, but I, I think there's definitely an upside for, uh, you know, if there's a chance to play some more hockey that they have young guys who can uh, uh, continue to, you know, play big roles. And as, as the season's gone on, we've seen guys like Volkwitz and Doc play larger roles for the Hawks and, um, you know, playing top power play units and, and getting meaningful ice time. So I, I think the more that can help the Blackhawks, maybe not this year, and, you know, the end result might not be still what they wanted, but uh, when you look, you know, a year or two years down the road, uh, these are the guys who are going to be leading the Hawks and taking over for the Kane and Taze of the world. And um, so I, I think that could be significant for them. I totally forgot that Smiths was there. I used to skate with Zach Smith over summers and stuff when he was still uh, Maple Creek Swift area there. That's hilarious. What was what was it like before we get into the young guys? Because I totally want to ask you about that. But what was it like adding a player like Zach Smith who, I mean, I'm not going to say it. Like, he's obviously not at, like, a Jamie Ben level. But, like, he plays a similar style where, like, he can really do a little bit of everything. So what do you think he brought to the team this year that kind of made him a, a good fit in Chicago? Yeah, no, I, you know, he'd probably be the first one to say that it hasn't been a, a really positive season. You know, he, he had some injuries, um, you know, fought to, you know, you know kind of bounced in and out of the lineup, underperformed a little bit. Obviously, the production probably isn't where it used to be, but um, and, and it's tough, too. You know, he, he was in Ottawa for, for so long, and then to come in a new team that already had, you know, the you know, Keith and Seabrook and a lot of guys who are veterans, um, 
that I think finding his footing where he had such a presence in that in the center's room and um, kind of being the new guy in, in Chicago. So I think as the season went along, he felt a little bit more comfortable with this game. But, um, you know, he, he played mostly fourth line this year. And, um, you know, there's even a question about whether they'll bring him back, maybe just buy him out, or he, his salary is still pretty significant, you know, like his cap hit is. So, um, yeah, it probably wasn't what, you know, they traded Artem and Nisimov for him, and it was sort of they wanted to move into Nisimov out where he just didn't have a spot. And um, this saved a little bit of money, and they were hoping that he'd kind of click in there. But it was, it was, it was a bit of an inconsistent season for him. That's fair. He's definitely one of those guys who I, I, I feel like he, he can play a role and he's he's never really been an NHL stud, but he can definitely kind of fit in where needed. And I think that was kind of his, yeah, the contract thing. Hey, I mean, you can't fault guys for getting paid. I think that's the, the, the biggest thing that I've learned is, you know, you're, you're not going to take less money just because you think that your role is going to deteriorate down the road. Scott, I wanted to ask you, Kirby Donk, now that's a guy who me and Adam, I mean, got to really watch in Saskatoon, got to watch him, you know, growing up playing minor hockey, major juniors, and now that transition into the NHL. Do you, I, I think it was a slower start, I think everyone would agree with that, but do you think he transitioned, um, not not easy or smoothly, but, but pretty nicely for an 18-year-old into the NHL? Because I think that he... It exceeded expectations from my standpoint, at least. You know, being selected like third overall or whatever, I, I really wasn't sure that his game would translate to the National Hockey League that quick. Yeah, and that, it's a bit of a rocky start for him too. Just the fact that he suffered a concussion back at Traverse City in the rookie tournament. So you know, it, it, he was hopeful to join training camp from the start, and um, it took him a while to get you know. Uh, to be right after that concussion, so the Blackhawks gave him time, and you know they wanted to give him a chance to, uh, you know, see if he can play in the NHL now. You know, I think a lot of people expected that he'd uh, be back in the, you know, back in the Western League this year, and um, and just you know another year of development, and you know he had some inconsistencies last year in Saskatoon, and um, you know he started playing really, really, really well and more consistent during the playoffs, and that's the Blackhawks really fell in love with him. But the thought was that maybe he needed another year over there, and. Uh, certainly has a lot of the uh, the skill and, and, and obviously the body and all the things that make him uh, so highly touted. And I just thought maybe the consistency in another year of just, you know, being a teenager. But uh, he came in and, you know, Blackhawks, to their credit, gave him a chance to earn a spot and, you know, kind of eased him into the NHL. And um, as the season went on, you know, he uh, he had his ups and downs a little bit as, as an 18-year-old can I have. But um, you can see why the Blackhawks are so high in him. And, and at times he, he flourished, you know. Um, certainly toward the end of the season he was on the top power play unit but you know, that net front presence and, uh, you know the stats weren't there but you know they weren't that far off or they probably probably the same as Kako and, and Hughes and there wasn't a whole lot of difference especially when those guys were getting massive opportunities throughout the season um, you know I, I think uh, yeah I, I think Doc has a lot of upside and you know certainly needs a development to continue where he uh, a lot of plays this year where he nearly finished and you know barely did amazing things and at some point you need to do those but you can see where um, with his length and his size, he just uh, you know he can keep the puck, he can win the puck. Um, you know he, he's a better skater than he probably gets credit for. And um, you know I, I think playing with uh, high-end guys like you know like Kane and DeBrincat and getting some of those opportunities, I, I think that only helps him too. So yeah, I, I think the Blackhawks were really happy about his first year and liked how he uh, you know how he began and especially how he finished and um, like where he's going. Now, one of the guys that Adam wanted to, me to ask you about, because 
this is probably a little bit more of an incon- or unconventional situation. When the Hawks got Strom, this was a, a little bit of a, you know, I don't know if gamble is the right word, but I don't think anyone really expected him to, to kind of pop off like he did. Like, did, did you see this from the start? Like, he's got a little bit of extra jump in his step, or how how did, how did that really go about? Like, the you know, even even with you know a guy like Debrinkant too, like, I, I feel like there was just some extra energy in that lineup at, at times. Yeah, you know, Blackhawks, they just weren't in love with Schmaltz, and um, I don't think Quinville loved them, and... Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I guess even when, I guess when Carlton came aboard, it was actually, actually when the trade occurred. So it's, uh, you know, Stan Bowman, uh, I don't know if they, they thought Schmaltz was going to be worth the money and they thought Strom was worth a little bit of the risk where maybe he'd underperformed in Arizona and really hadn't got a chance. And the fact that they had to bring kids who, you know, played with Aerie, uh, in Aerie with them, they thought there was some chemistry there and, you know, Strom could fit as, uh, you know, maybe number two, number three center. Um, and uh, for the most part, he, he, he's been that, you know, him and him and him and Dabrinkit have, uh, have clicked, and a lot of the goals that bring it on the ice more. You know, Strom's often there as well, and um, you know Strom's kind of worked on his defense. You know, his skating's always going to be um, maybe not at the elite level, but something he's worked on, and, and he's definitely managed. And I think he's proven that he can, uh, you know, he can belong in the NHL. And it'll be interesting now with the Blackhawks, uh, you know, owe him a contract this summer and see where where that falls, and whether it's sort of a bridge deal, sort of like Dabrinkit, but. Um, you know, he played a little bit of the wing this year too, so they they, they moved him around a little bit, and certainly bringing in Doc, um, you know, kind of you kind of wonder where Strom exactly fits in. Where certainly Taves is still in the long term picture, but um, you know, if you can go down the middle with Taves, Doc, and, and Strom, the Blackhawks should be in a pretty good spot for years to come. So, um, yeah, I, I think Strom, you know, I think he found a comfort level with the fact that the Brinkett was there, and you know, he got some some early ice time and opportunity things that didn't always happen in Arizona. Scott Powers, our guest here, senior writer at the Athletic Chicago, talking all things Blackhawks. And I feel like I'm just going up and down the roster and get you to break down every single player. But I got to ask about one more because this was another guy who we had heard a lot about when he was over in Europe because, you know, the the Swiss League, the NLA, it's not a high-scoring league. And so anyone who can put up good points, you're, you're kind of a little bit intrigued by because it's definitely a very strong defensive league. But for you know Dominic Kubalik to come over to the NHL and how how mature he looked, how poised he looked, how offensively dangerous he was, was this something where you know you, you think the Blackhawks kind of hit the jackpot with signing a European free agent like that because man he was just an unbelievable addition to the lineup. Yeah, no, they, they, they've had some luck doing that. Obviously, Panarin's the the number one case of them, you know, finding someone. And, and in this case, they actually had to trade the Kings for his rights. And the Kings had a problem with signing him. Um, and there wasn't any, you know, there wasn't any given that he'd come over to North America. And I think the Blackhawks did a little bit of their homework before making that trade with the Kings. Um, and, and I think they only gave him, I think it was a six-round pick for, for Cooper League's rights. And then they signed him to the, you know, I think Cooper League was, uh, it was important to him to, you know, come over and, get the one-year entry-level deal and, and then make some money. So, I mean, he set himself up pretty well here to get paid this summer as well. So, um, you know, but the Blackhawks have a pretty good track record of Panarin and, and, you know, the guys like, uh, uh, you know, Eric Gosses and the defenseman and, you know, Dominic Cahoon was just before Cooper League. And um, they've done a pretty good job of identifying the guys and guys that can uh, play in the NHL immediately. And, um, you know, Cooper League certainly, I, I think with his shots where you, you thought he had a pretty good chance of it being 
I guess, the transferring of our league, especially the Swiss league, not as many guys come over. So um, I think with his size and his shot, he had a pretty good chance, and certainly his numbers, uh, you know, were eye-popping in, in NLA, which it's not like, a, like you said, it's not a huge offensive league. So uh, some of his numbers translated to, uh, you know, pretty good equivalency of the NHL. So I, I think even, you know, despite that, he certainly exceeded expectations for the Blackhawks. And, you know, even, you know, he was healthy scratched a couple times uh, over the season where he had a, you know, earn his, uh, earn his ice time, you know, playing both sides of the ice and um, certainly got a chance later in the year to play more of a, you know, a, a, a top, top six role and getting more ice time and showing, you know, for him to score 30 plus goals as a rookie. Um, uh, and just, you know, <laughs> That's not bad. The first year, I, I think the Blackhawks like where he's going as well. Oh, for sure. And I mean, I think his his Swiss numbers, if I remember right, this is just going off the top of my head. I believe they're comparable to Austin Matthews in his season over there, better than Matthews. And I mean, I get it, Matthews was young when he was over there, but still, that's a pretty damn good player to be in, in that situation. Last one for, we got, got about a minute here. But where do the Blackhawks go from here? I get it that, you know, this team probably not ready for a full rebuild, but do they think that they can retool this team to make another cup run with Jonathan Taves, Patrick Kane, maybe your, your Keith and Seabrook? Like, do, do you think that there's still that belief that this team has at least one more crack at a cup? Yeah, you know, I guess it, it all kind of depends on whether those young guys take the next step and the old guys don't all too far behind, you know. I mean, you you have Keith and um, Seabrook. Seabrook is coming off three surgeries. He's you know, getting closer to 40 than he is 30. And Taven Kane, you know, getting a little bit over than 30 now, too. So, um, you know, the concern is if those guys start falling off. But, uh, you know, especially Keith and Taven and Kane have, have been pretty consistent where Kane's production still continues to improve. And Taven's offense numbers have been pretty good. And something he's still playing 25, 26 minutes a game. So, as of right now, it seems like that's sustainable for at least a little bit longer. And then, you know, if, if the Brink had, you know, the Brink had had a down season, but if he can regain that scoring touch and, you know, Kirby Dock takes that next step. And, you know, it's a team that especially needs a defenseman, a uh, younger defenseman that kind of emerge where they've, uh, you know, they've struggled in recent years not having as many top four defensemen and filling in for guys like Nicholas Stromels, you know, Duya, and certainly with Seabrooks, you know, not being his old self, um, that's hurt. And, and they're hopeful with guys like Adam Boquist and, uh, you know, Ian Mitchell, they just signed from uh, out of Denver as a second round pick a few years back. And, um, you know, they have a few other guys, Lucas Carlson and Alec uh, Regula. And so they, they have some guys that they, they like in their prospect system, and we'll see who fits. But, you know, guys like Boquist and Mitchell, they certainly have high expectations for it, guys that they expect to be top four defensemen years to come. So the Blackhawks need to, you uh, know, those guys emerge. And then there's certainly some questions about the goalie situation, too, where, um, you know, they traded Robin Leonard at the deadline. and not Corey Crawford's going to be UFA, so does he sign for a couple of years to stay on, or do they, they go out and get someone? You know, they have a couple guys in the pipeline that uh, that they've, you know, played pretty well in the AHL, but you just never know. So I, I think there's definitely, there's there's some questions to ask this offseason. I, I think the Blackhawks are at least optimistic about their youth, and so far their core, for the most part, has been able to, to stay pretty stable. So if you can get those two things going, and, and maybe, maybe they have a better shot next year, too. What a breakdown. Scott Powers, thank you so much for hopping on the show this morning. No, no problem. Thanks for having me. Take care. Scott Powers from the Athletic Chicago Blackhawks Senior Writer, our guest here on World Hockey Report. We've got to hit another commercial. When we come back, 
Ella KHL talks some Russia. Jillian Cameron is going to jump on the show. It's World Hockey Report live with Cody Jansen on 12 Ounce Sports. World Hockey Report Live coming to you on 12 Ounce Sports, Wednesday, May 20th, 944 local time up here in the Great White North. This is our Wits Nutrition and Performance big interview of the day. WNP got a lot of stuff going on right now. Free at-home workout programs. Got to go check them out. Wits Nutrition and Performance. They also got a bunch of great meal plans. Go check them out. WNP proud sponsors of World Hockey Report. All righty. Join now, KHL reporter Jillian Kemmerer. How's it going? Hey, thanks for having me. What's quarantine like for you then? Have you just kind of been hunkered down? Are you watching The Last Dance? Like, are you, you know, are you just grinding away writing articles? Yeah, I'm definitely watching The Last Dance, and I have put off the last episode of it so that I can keep dancing until the end of the week because it's been basically the only respite from a no sports world, but. I'm down the Jersey Shore. I have my dog here. The weather's not great, but the ocean's a nice, a nice help during quarantine. So I'm hunkered down. What about you? There, there's worse places to be. No, I got it. I got an all right setup, and lucky enough, I can still. Uh, Go to work, the radio station. I mean, sometimes, you know, you still need to have that that media influence. I think that people would be quite bored if every single thing just shut down in this time. And as much as people want to rip the media for maybe their coronavirus coverage or whatever, still a pretty integral part yeah. of the world. We, we, we kind of can't be done without. Sure, it almost makes you more important in a sense because you're the only lifeline people have to the real world. Well, I wouldn't say that. There's a lot of other things that people might be doing other than World Hockey Report, but hey, we got to go with that. <laughs> Jillian, I wanted to, to dive into a little bit about your career and kind of how you got into the, the hockey, the KHL coverage, because it's an interesting point of not too many North Americans get that opportunity to, to go over there, but how, how did it come about? How did... How did Jillian end up covering the KHL, the you know the the Chinese team in the KHL, and you know just walk me through that? Yeah, so it's kind of funny. It, it started, I would say, from when I was a kid, at least the rumblings of it, because I grew up in the '90s when the first Russian players were playing in the NHL, and even as a non hockey player, I could appreciate that there was something really different and really special about the way they played, and I became kind of obsessed, especially when I was younger, with trying to understand what it was that made them so different. And as time went on, that interest in Russian and really Soviet hockey history turned into an interest in Russia more broadly. So I wound up studying Russian history, politics. I wound up going to Russia a fair bit. And then even though my career at first took me more to the business side, and I did a fair bit about the business of sports, I was still traveling a lot to Eastern Europe and also reporting on it. So. When I got the opportunity to transition my career, um, I actually wound up winning a fellowship to go to Russia. It's given to four or five Americans every year, and I was given the opportunity to live and work there, and I just sort of hustled my way into the KHL, which, you know, after the fact, easier said than done, but I got the chance to finally go on the inside and, and see what motivates these players, see how their history still impacts 
what happens day to day on the ice, and, and I've just been granted an enormous opportunity that I'm so grateful for to introduce, I think, the league and some of its personalities to the English-speaking audience, because I think sometimes a lot gets lost in translation. Well, you've got to interview some pretty cool people and some pretty big names. One that sticks out was the Alexei Kovalev uh, interview or, you know, day in the life of him. Definitely. That was one of the, the first ones I saw. And I was like, you know, that was, a, that was just a really good piece because it was it was done in a, in a not a very North American format. But you know what I'm saying? We're like it was a it was a good watch for a North American who doesn't really have a look behind, you know, the, the curtain or what really happens over there. And everyone kind of thinks, oh, you know, you're, you're living in the barracks, you know, you're, you're going to be in Sochi where, you know, there's a million empty apartments, like, like things like that. But it's actually, it's a lot different, especially, you know, the places that you're working in, you know, Beijing, you said Shanghai, Moscow, St. Petersburg, like it's, it's a, a very different world than what people imagine. So what was it like for you as a lifestyle transition? Russia's a big move for a North American. I, I spent a lot of time once I got there being more immersed in the language. I had a bit under my belt before I went, but there's nothing like being there full time and having to grocery shop and talk to your landlord about a broken light bulb and that kind of stuff. So that was the crazy first start for me. Um, and I also moved there and I was quite lucky to move to Moscow during the FIFA World Cup. So number one, I was skipping some Russian lessons to go to the World Cup, but number two, it was just a really open atmosphere, the likes of which I had never experienced because the first time I went to Russia was in 2011. I had a great time. I loved Moscow, but it felt so different to me in terms of the level of English on menus or being spoken and just the general openness to foreigners. So I think if we think about some of the legacies of the FIFA World Cup, of course, they're not always positive on the host countries. But one thing that I think Russia benefited from was just this a bit more acceptance and openness of tourists, because at the end of the day, it's not the hottest tourist destination. And Having been there, and especially being around sports fans that came out for that, they were like, I can't believe I never considered coming here before. And, and Moscow made a lot of investment in their parks and their sidewalks and their infrastructure. But overall, you know, the transition was both hard at times, but also easier than what I expected from some of the previous trips I had made to Russia. Yeah, as a tourist, I think you're a lot happier to be in Moscow than Nova Kuznets or something like that. A <laughs> little bit of a different world, a little bit of a, a different world there. From the KHL uh, standpoint then, like, what's it been like covering it as a league where I think that, you know, it, of recent it was getting to a, a really strong place where honestly it's it's obviously dominating the, the normal European hockey scene, but now it's kind of going to be taking a little bit of a, a different turn because, you know, it's a big oil and gas economy supported league. And I, I've seen a little bit that there's going to be a lot of changes, but also some stuff that you've talked about is a lot of the younger players going on. And I know you've, you've talked about, you know, or you talked, tweeted about guys like Sorokin, Kaprizov, those guys making the transition to the NHL. Like, do you think that those guys are a lot better suited to make the jump over than, than say, KHL players of, you know, five, ten years ago, just due to how much better the league's gotten? They're unquestionably better suited. And these two in particular, uh, I'm very hopeful will have a smooth transition because, number one, they have the accolades behind them. It's one thing to come to North America not having proven yourself in the KHL and then test the waters in the highest profile, highest pressure league in the world. It's another thing to come to the NHL with an Olympic gold medal around your neck and a Russian championship behind you because 
we know who you are. We know what you've achieved, and the KHL is intensely competitive, so it's not that they skated through to these grand championships and, and titles and prizes. These guys proved themselves night after night on arguably the best team in the KHL. Um, I was totally blown away by the level of English that both of them speak. They're both shy about using it, and I wouldn't be surprised if it takes a little while for them to get in front of the camera speaking English, but Ilya Sorokin in particular, I had a translator with us uh, when I interviewed him, but we didn't really have to resort to him too much because I would ask the question uh, in English, and he would answer me directly in English, and I think that both of them have not only made an investment in preparing for that transition, but Kirill Kaprizov, back in January when I interviewed him, talked about his relationship to Ryan Stoa, who was an import to Novokuznetsk and who really pushed Kirill to learn English. And Kirill chose to learn it because he wanted to have that friendship with Ryan. And, and so when you look at the, the systems that these guys developed in, the relationships they had, I'm very, very positive about what we can expect from them when they come over. And I also think the KHL has only gotten increasingly competitive over time. So as far as a training ground goes, it's getting better and better. And it just so happens that the two of them are on a team where Sergei Fedorov was GM and is still on the board. So they also had access to an NHL alum who made that transition at a time when it was so much harder and more politically charged. And I can only think that those conversations would go on to serve them. Well, you made a good point about them kind of taking the English seriously or preparing it in advance. And I think that with a lot of import players, it doesn't matter, Russian, wherever, the Czech Republic, wherever you're from, is that if you, you know, prepare properly, I think you're fine, which is, you know, not been the case with everyone. I mean, one player in particular might have played in Vegas, might not have, uh, you know, comes to mind who really didn't have too much seriousness about playing in North America, just thought the money might be uh, a little bit cooler. But like with with a lot of these young players, there's been a little bit of tension with you know the the league and agents and stuff too. Do you think for these these young players who are coming over to play major juniors or even try play American League NHL, do you think there is a little bit of bitterness between you know the the, the KHL and North American leagues just because a lot more are having positive experiences in North America versus you know maybe. 10 years ago when or 20 years ago when the game was a lot more not goonish but a lot rougher and so to be a european over here it's not fun when you know you've got a bunch of canadian kids just trying to kick the shit out of you right absolutely i you know i think for the khl it's never going to be easy to lose your star kirill kaprizov was an olympic star he certainly anchored red army he lifted the gagarin cup he's beloved in russia and it's never easy to see someone like that go just like when some of the Russians sort of get to the twilight of their careers and leave the NHL, a lot of NHL fans are sad to see them go. So that's never going to be easy. But I've heard this said, and Sergei Fedorov and I had a long chat about this um, in the fall of last year, and it's about when is the right time for a Russian player to go. If you look at like a Kaprizov or a Sorokin, they certainly served their country on national team duty, they served their club. They came over in this sweet spot that I would say is somewhere between 22 and 24 when they've achieved things at home. They've been respectful of their KHL contracts, which most Russian players are. They serve them out. And then they came over. And I think with Sutterov, to his point, he says, I want to see these guys stay and make it in the KHL, not just for the KHL, selfishly speaking, but for their sake. And I think that if we continue to see guys make that transition just a touch older, um, so let's say the 22 to 24 range, if you if you go a little further than that, you're past your peak or it's harder to adjust. But 
I think that if they serve in the KHL in those early years, they make a name for themselves, they come over, that's probably the best model to continue watching. I think the problem is sometimes there's a flight from Russia at a younger age. These guys are signing with agents that kind of leave them out to dry once they bring them over to North America. They don't know where to train. They don't know how to adjust. And that is, to me, probably not the best route. Whereas if you establish yourself, you get your hockey background down, you start to learn English, and then you come over, A, you get a little bit of time in the K, and B, you come over a better and more prepared hockey player. Totally fair. Jillian Cameron, our guest, global hockey reporter, host of the Faceoff for the KHL. And one of your most recent articles, go check that out. It's on uh, khl.ru, I guess, en.khl. You want the English version? Probably, I don't think any one of our followers would speak Russian or at least, you know, read Russian fluently. <laughs> but hey, you got a cool interview. I mean, Chris Chelios' son, Jake Chelios, and, you know, him wearing number seven. You know, in his first season over overseas, what was that like talking to him and walk us through? Because I think a lot of people are going to find the funny or the story funny about how he actually ended up wearing seven. Because I don't think he was too keen on it at the start. <laughs> no, he wasn't, and that's I think it's so funny. So seven is the number that his father switched to when he played for the Chicago Blackhawks. But first of all, Jake's a very smart guy, and I think that he did a, a really great job of explaining some of the specific differences between the KHL and North American play and why sometimes it's not 100% obvious to play North American style of hockey in the KHL. Um, There are an increasing number of import coaches to the K, and he's playing under Kurt Frazier, who is a notorious NHL enforcer, goes on to be a head coach for the Thrashers, he's in the Stars organization, and is now coaching in the K. And over the course of this past season, both he and Jake have really had to make a transition because although Kurt came over at the end of the season before, he got very little time under his belt in the KHL before the season ended. So the two of them make the transition. Jake does a great job of explaining some of the differences that he's encountered. And then I was like, look, I have to ask you, because I, I always am mindful. I don't want the interview to be about Jake's dad. I want it to be about Jake. But I was like, you're wearing seven. It's unavoidable that I have to ask Did you do it to pay homage to your dad. And he was like, well, normally I wear number 27. And when they sent out the group chat to ask us what numbers we were going to wear, um, I was going to answer, and my teammate Adam Cracknell called me on the phone. And we were, like, just chatting for 10 minutes. The minute we get off, Adam Cracknell, not knowing the number I wanted, takes the number 27. And then I think he was, he was looking at another number. Garrett Hunt takes it. So finally the equipment guy is like, you cool with number seven? And Jake was like, yeah, okay. So I was like, does your dad know that you took this number as literally the last resort? And he was like, no, he doesn't know that, but he was really excited that I was wearing it. So in advance, I'm very sorry to Chris Chelios for breaking that unfortunate news. <laughs> That's hilarious. Jillian, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I'm sure you've got a bunch more. We haven't even really dug into any funny Russian stories. We might have to get to those uh, later on. But thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Stay safe. Jillian Kemmerer, our guest, global hockey reporter, KHL host for the Faceoff KHL. That's going to do it. Another edition of World Hockey Report. Thanks for tuning in wherever you are watching, listening from. Huge thanks to Scott Powers as well. 
for jumping on the show at 9.20. Adam Erdman Trout at the start. In case you missed it, any of it, podcast is going to be up wherever you get your podcast. Apple, iTunes, SoundCloud. I don't even know. Google Play. It goes to all of those places. 12-ounce sports. Your home for sports talk radio, live sports action. When it resumes, obviously go check them out. 120zsportsradio.com. That is going to do it for this show. Pete's Power Plays is up next. Thanks again. Have yourself a good Wednesday, good week back here. Same time, same place. We'll talk your report with Cody Jansen on 12 Ounce Sports. 